Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Will Asham on his new book, The Passengers. Will Asham is the author of two novels, Clear Water and The Heritage, and two works of non-fiction, Strange Labyrinth and Chamber Music, Wu-Tang in America in 36 Pieces. He also founded the independent record label, Big Dada, which he ran for over 15 years. And today we're going to be talking about Will's latest book, which is The Passengers. Will, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? Tell us, first of all, what the idea behind The Passengers is then. So The Passengers, I can tell you what it is to start off with, and then I'll tell you where the idea came from. So it's 180 sections long, and each section is a different person talking. By that, um, I think people sometimes wonder what I mean by that. I literally mean that each section, somebody uh, was recorded speaking, that was turned into a transcript. I then edited it down and uh, tidied it up a bit and placed it amongst these other 180 people. As to where it came from, the original, I guess the original idea to do it came from my move from writing uh, fiction to nonfiction. And when I first wrote uh, Strange Labyrinth, one of the things that I noticed that I was doing, I'm, I mean, I guess I should preface this by saying that I'm not a great sort of original thinker. I'm not a, a deep philosopher. Uh, and so what I found I was doing writing nonfiction really was speaking to other people and reading loads of books and basically taking quotes from all those people, finding a good order to put them together in and then adding in anecdotes in between about me falling out of trees and so on for a bit of comic relief. So in effect, it seemed like it was a, that nonfiction for me was a kind of collaging form, which was exciting to me because obviously, as you also mentioned, I ran Big Dada, a record label that uh, specialised in hip-hop for a number of years, and hip-hop is itself a kind of collaging form of music. So having had that realisation, that was that why I then went on to write Chamber Music, which was about the Wu-Tang Clan. So it was about that kind of classic early 90s golden era of sampling. And then while I was writing that book, I, had, I started to wonder whether it would be possible to do the collage without me, without the falling out of trees bits, in effect, um, and just have a collage, a pure collage without uh, me kind of sticking it all together. Uh, And so The Passengers, in a sense, is is the attempt to write that book. So what we're going to do so everybody can get a taste of what you're talking about is I'm going to ask you to read 
passages from the passengers all the way through the interview. So if you would, if you would read us a couple of pieces now. 23. I got bonged off to boarding school. There were four Irish girls at school and we were collectively known as the green, I won't say the word, it begins with W, G, S, uh, which was nice, wasn't it? This was an English school in the middle of Wales. The Welsh thought that all the girls at school were English. This one afternoon, the Welsh girls were speaking in English, saw us, broke into Welsh, and as soon as we'd crossed them by a certain distance, they turned back and yelled, English snobs. And I just found myself yelling, I'm not an English snob, I'm an Irish snob. Northern Ireland has a lot of Gaelic loan words that are used in everyday speech. So when I came to England, I sounded like everyone else, but vast swathes of what I said were completely incomprehensible. People were looking at me with a furrowed brow, and I sort of judged that this must be a word that people don't understand. It was rather sad, actually, that I had to censor my language so that it could be understood. That annoyed me at the time, and when I go back to Northern Ireland now, it's almost immediate. I land and my vocabulary changes. It's like getting into a nice warm bath. It's delightful to use proper words again. And then number seven, I see a bit of mopping up ahead. I do think it's had an effect on some people's mindset in terms of going out, doing normal things. It's really affected people's mental health, a lot of people. What's next is very much, I don't know how to put it, but almost realigning ourselves back to -to day-to-day living. So you mentioned... You asked me there to randomly pick a couple of numbers and the way this book was put together in terms of how you chose how to interview, uh, you leave quite a bit to chance, there's randomness to it. So let's talk about how you found the people who are in this book. Yeah, sure. So um, the impetus for that was that once I decided that I was going to do this thing and that I'd probably do it by trying to talk to people, you, you kind of get stuck in a bit of a bind thinking but how you know how do you choose how do you choose 180 or 200 people uh for a book and what does it mean if you choose this person and not that person or this type of person and not that person and around that time I went to see Faces Places uh by Agnes Varda and um JR um they were over to do a special performance I know someone who knows JR a little bit and I got tickets for me and my daughter and Agnes Varda was there And during this event, she said this quote, which is now at the front of the book, which is chance has been my best assistant. Uh, It turns out she she said it uh, at every opportunity for about the previous 30, 40 years. But I didn't know that at the time. So to me, it seemed uh, it seemed very fresh. And that seemed like a way forward to try and use serendipity and chance rather than relying on uh, a kind of really formalized plan. And the first uh, step I then took uh, was to go hitchhiking. I actually left that event and said, turned to my daughter and said, I think I'm going to go hitchhiking next week. And I think it actually took a couple of weeks to to kind of build up the um, bravery to actually do it. But then I started going hitchhiking. And what I liked about that was that, in effect, the interviewees were choosing me rather than the other way around because I'd wait for some, I'd stick my thumb out, wait for someone to stop, get in the car. As we drove off, I'd explain what I was doing, ask them if it would be all right to record an interview with them. And I'd sit and chat to them and record that, pop out of the services and start all over again. So that was where I began. Then as time went on, various other ideas occurred to me and I various other approaches. Part of the problem with hitchhiking is that you mainly obviously speak to men because it's mainly men who stop for hitchhikers for obvious reasons. So I began a couple of other small projects 
that I approached in different ways. And then when um, the pandemic started, I had to come up with different ways again. So I did things like I set up a website where people could record themselves uh, telling me secrets. And I advertised that through social media and a couple of articles on, on little websites and things. And so on like that. 26. This is a story about fear. I don't suppose it's to my credit, but anyway, here we go. Once I was staying in a very boring bit of a very boring city when I thought I'd like to make myself a bit of an adventure. So one night, rather than morning, one night I got up very early to walk during the night out to a fishing village near the town, which was actually quite pretty. I wanted to go down onto the waterfront of the village and watch the sun come up. Up I got in the middle of the night and walked fairly fast along the coast road until I came to the village. I looked down the hill towards the waterfront and I could not see a thing. Not a light on in any of the houses, not a light on any of the fishing boats that were still in the harbour, though most were out fishing. It was totally black. With the starlight at my back and darkness in front of me, I couldn't physically make myself walk down the hill towards the village and the adventure I'd set myself to watch the sun come up. And so, within minutes, I'd turned round in despair, leaving the darkness behind, and through the last of the starlight, the first of the dawn, back I went to my boring digs in my boring little bit of town. Eight. I tried killing myself. I tried hanging myself after I come out. It actually helped with the PTSD because I've got brain damage to my memory, so I can't remember a lot of my time in the army. Do you know what I mean? It kind of worked, kind of helped in a way, yeah. I was hanging for that long, I damaged my memory. So I wanted to talk a bit more about the, the hitchhiking elements of the, the sort of serendipity of finding people. Hitchhiking is, it's like, it seems like something from the past that people don't really do anymore. So I just wanted to talk about just the mechanisms of it, how you actually, oh, I guess how the people that pick you up found you, I guess. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It is something from the past. I used to do it when I was about 20, so 30 odd years ago. And I remember going to the uh, M1 junction at Brent Cross back then, and there would be a queue of people stretching off into the distance, hitchhiking, uh, all with their signs for different places. And there was a whole etiquette about where you stood in the queue and um, whether, you know, if a car pulled up next to you, whether you were meant to wait for the person who was at the front of the queue or whether you could get in, et cetera, et cetera. And now, literally, hitchhiking was just me. I think I saw, during the whole time I was hitchhiking, I saw one other hitchhiker uh, who was considerably younger than me. So, yeah, that was quite an odd dynamic in a way. And I think people, it was interesting because people obviously mainly thought there must be some sort of problem that I needed help, uh, which was why they stopped for me. So. Yeah, it was quite an interesting setup in a way because they stopped in part, I think, quite often because they were worried about me. And then they found out that I was not not a maniac in the traditional sense of uh, axe-wielding maniac, but uh, a tape recorder-wielding maniac, maybe. So there was this slightly odd dynamic sometimes. But people, actually, the funny thing was that once you explained what you were doing, people people got it really quickly and, and quite and seemed to quite like it and quite enjoy it. I think in all the time I was hitchhiking, I had one person who I asked if they would um, be interested in being interviewed who actually just said, no, I don't want to do it, um, which was kind of tricky because I was already in the car by then and driving up the motorway. So we then had 
quite, uh, I think probably half an hour or so before the first services came into view where we sat in this car. But actually, once once I'd got in, I don't think his English was very good. And once I'd got in, uh, we did have quite a nice chat anyway, even though uh, I, I didn't record it and have no recollection of what we said. Uh, but as a whole, people were, yeah, they, they were keen to help. It was interesting, the groups of people who tended to stop. A lot of people who weren't born in Britain, uh, a lot of people from Eastern Europe, where I think there's still a hitchhiking culture, a lot of people from originally from Africa, lots of uh, people who uh, talked about their religion as a reason for stopping, so Christians and Muslims in particular, and a lot of ex-squaddies as well, because I think ex-squaddies, I don't know, maybe it's just that they're less scared about being um, murdered by someone who's obviously as, as, as weak and weedy as me. And my favourite was the guy who I got into his car and he said, oh, people, I often stop for, whenever I see hitchhikers, I stop for them. And people say to me, aren't you scared that they're an axe-wielding maniac? And I say, well, what would be the chances of there being two of them in the car? Uh, which was, uh, at that point, I did sort of check whether he'd locked me in or not, but he hadn't. And he was very nice. He was very sweet, really. 24. To be fair, I've had some weird dates. This is really embarrassing. I went to Laser Quest. It was just us two in the whole thing because no one else was in there. He was really up for it because he's a bit weird and he's older as well, which was even weirder. Like, why are you, an adult, wanting to do this? I was just like, ah, ha, 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 sounds fun. But inside, that's literally not at all what I want to do. I could not think of anything worse than to go to Laser Quest. We met on a train and then I can't remember who it was, whether he asked for my number or he gave me his. I think he got mine. And then because he lived in Bristol, he was like, do you want to come to Bristol? You can come to mine. We can go out and have a day of things. And then I got there and he was like, yeah, I decided we can go to Laser Quest. And I was like, I should have just not come. Now with social media as well, you get home and they're like, how are you? And I'm like, oh my God, you can never stop talking anymore. You can never end a conversation. 15. It looks like it's wobbly. The ground looks like it's shaking or something because the pieces don't quite fit. So it looks like it's wobbly. The person might be wobbling. It looks like an optical illusion because she's standing, but it looks like she's sitting down at the same time. I think he took a picture and then maybe split the picture into pieces, like maybe gradually cut it and then fixed it together. It looks like it is one thing, but then you realise it's lots of little pieces. Like this would be one country, that would be another country, that would be a different country. It would look like it's one picture, but it would be lots of different pictures. Then you can kind of tell a story because there'll be lots of ideas. Otherwise, if you actually know what's happening, it's not that interesting. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a little atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Will Ashon, and we're talking about his new book, The Passengers. And Will, those last two examples that you read are good illustrations of what often happens in the book. One of them was a short little anecdote about a date. The second yeah. one is a passage of sort of beautiful writing, but it it's completely out of context. It's yeah. just like a, a section that you have to sort of put meaning on yourself and try and figure out what it is. And so I want to talk about how how this book came together in terms of in terms of the editing, the format it's taken, the way, you know, the way you've laid it out, but basically how you chose which sections of I presume a much longer interview went into the book. Yeah. And that's that was obviously uh that was kind of the $64 million question when I got near to the end. I had probably around uh, 200 interviews done and I started to think about how I would put them together and I made a terrible mistake at that point, which is that I did the maths for how many variations there are of 180, how many different orders you can put 180 different objects in. And the number's so big that it crashed the calculator on my phone. It has, I think it has 14 trailing zeros. It's like 43 digits long or something. It's just a phenomenally huge number. It's basically 180 times 179 times 178. 180 factorial, in effect. And at that point, I absolutely, uh, how can I put this politely, wet myself, maybe, with the fear of it all. So then I had to start thinking about a, how you could shape each individual section, which I'd already start. I guess I'd already started to do, and I think probably what I aimed for there was really the idea. I guess was to try and find. I say the magic; it, it makes it sound a bit a bit pretentious, but I do genuinely. I think I do genuinely mean that the magic in each section. There was a, there's an example quite near the start of the book where somebody spoke to me about his. I asked him to. I think I was doing it at the time. I was asking people to tell me a story about, and then I had a list of 
probably 30 different categories and I'd get them to pick a number from one to 30 and that would be the category that category that they got and he got holiday so he told me about a family holiday he'd been on and when he was telling me it was really there was something really exciting and magical about what he told me but when I read it back through I was struggling to find what it was and in the end I focused in on this there was a moment where he spoke about they were sitting near a tree and they heard this buzzing and they looked around and they realized that the tree was entirely covered in bees. And I suddenly sort of realized that was the magical moment within it. The rest of it was magical to him, but that was the moment that was unusual enough and interesting enough that it would catch anyone's imagination. So partly I started off by boiling down each section to as near to that moment as I could. And obviously some are longer and that's partly because some are more like uh, stories and others are, I guess, observations or, or, or thoughts about, about life. And so some of those um, were easier to make shorter and some of the stories I left longer. And then eventually, after quite a long process, I came up with this idea of starting really small, starting from almost nothing, and then allowing the sections to get bigger and bigger and bigger up to the middle of the book, and then to shrink away down, back down to nothing at the end. And that gave me a kind of rule by which I could then start sorting them and figuring out where they went and whether this one needed to be a bit bigger or a bit shorter and what, which one it would sit next to if it was longer or if it was, a, if it was half the length. Uh, and that gave me a way to sort of navigate my way through that initial uh, <laughs> that mathematical problem that I'd found myself stuck with. 153. The rat man came and set bait because we kept seeing a rat out the back in our garden swinging on our bird feeder. He's a freelance pest control guy because the council have stopped all pest control during lockdown. He's a lot more serious than the council guys about killing rats and suggested he set some traps. I was a bit uneasy about it and my wife really didn't want traps in the garden with the kids playing and with the next door neighbour's cat and hedgehogs and birds and so on. But I said to her, do you want rats? And she agreed, best to get rid of the rats once and for all. So the pest control man set two traps and said they were hidden and said they posed no threat to any other animals. This morning, as every morning, I was woken by birdsong. And I went out to check it and there was a female blackbird dead in the trap. Number five. We stopped next to these fir trees and my daughter said, what's that noise? What's going on? We're looking around for this strange buzzing sound, for this noise. And eventually we looked up and the trees were covered, literally covered in bees. You mentioned lockdown in that story about the rat man. And Mm. I wanted to talk about what's writing this book or compiling this. I'll say writing it, compiling Mm. it and Ed's in this book, putting this book together during the pandemic, how that coloured it. Yeah, it was really interesting, actually, because the initial response was one of complete terror because I'd just um, literally done the deal with Faber to do the book, uh, probably February 2020. And I went out for a drink with my new editor to celebrate. And a week later, I had COVID. And just as I was coming out of my personal COVID lockdown, we all went into the very first lockdown. And in that proposal, I kind of suggested that I was going to tour around the country meeting people. And obviously, there's this thing about if you're hoping to to use chance, if you're hoping for an element of serendipity or randomness to help you out, 
the obvious and easy way to do that is just to go to a place you've never been to before and see who you can find to speak to. And I wasn't going to be able to do that. So my initial reaction was one of um, panic. <laughs> Seems to be a bit of a running theme in every everything you ask me is that I say, then I panicked. <laughs> um, so there was initial amount of panic. And then I kind of started thinking about ways around that. I think the first thing I did was, as I said, I set up uh, my website with a recording function for people to record their secrets. And then from there, I started developing various other ideas that included an element of chance, even in some of them, where the chance was down to what question I asked people, I came up with a list of 12 kind of questions, in fact, so broad that they're almost not questions at all. And then I'd ask the interviewee to pick a number from one to 12. And that would be the question that I'd ask them for their interview. Um, and they were things like, I think one of them was, how does it feel? And another one was, what did it look like? So you'd have this moment where people would just go, what the hell are you talking about? But then you'd find almost immediately people would click. They'd suddenly go, ah, I know what I want to talk about. And they'd be off. So there was that. But the question was, oh, yeah. So the pandemic, the interesting thing for me, as it turned out, was the positive element of it was, A, that I think people were kind of keen to connect in a way with other people they were everyone was stuck at home which can be quite lonely and also even if it isn't lonely you're stuck with the same people so I think people were perhaps more eager to chat than they otherwise might have been and I think also a lot of people talk to me about time about having more time than they were used to uh spending less time at work and so hence actually having time to think about their lives and how they lived their lives and what they'd done with them and how they got on with other people. And so a lot of that, a lot of that stuff came out in the interviews. So I think my guess is that there's probably 20 sections in the book out of the 180, which uh, mention coronavirus or the pandemic directly. But quite often, you can sort of sense it in the background. It's one of those things that was kind of hanging in the air. Uh, When I did the hitchhiking interviews that was a bit earlier that was obviously before the pandemic uh, as no one would have picked me up once the pandemic had started and at that point everyone was the the elephant in the room was Brexit and uh, a lot of people spoke to me about Brexit or talked around Brexit or spoke about their anxieties or worries about things to do with that and then it kind of shifted onto this this new set of anxieties. 149 It's about 10,928 days until I'm in my 70s. So I haven't got long. I'm thinking I really do need a soulmate, a partner for company, companionship and protection. I was nearly homeless a while back and there were a couple of friends that put me up for a bit. But obviously, when you're in your late 30s, 40s, a lot of your friends have really young families. So it just scared me. And I thought, wow, okay, I really do need to stop being so independent. I tried two online dating apps, which were really good. Had some good dates. I'm friends with a couple of the men that I went out with, but I keep putting it off. I've decided now I'm going to be proactive about that particular subject. I think I've had quite a dysfunctional background, not because of my mother, but because of my father. And that's been my problem with men. So I've tried to be with women and that's fine too. So I'm bisexual. I'm a bit confused. I'm not sure whether I'm cut out for relationships. But I'm friendly with all my exes, I think, every single one of them, even the one that I had a legal battle with. I'm friendly with him and his wife. 163. Sometimes the cattle stand very close to the fence and you can hear them. Is it called ruminating? You can hear them chewing, chewing the cud. 
and it's really bloody loud. I hadn't realised that they actually kind of vomit up or bring up the grass they've already eaten and then re-chew it. It's a sound that I don't think I've ever heard in my whole life, but it's amazing seeing animals that big just hanging out and doing a lot of chewing, ruminating. It's to do with digesting, digesting ideas, digesting and reconstituting ideas. And just one more thing then. So in the whole, what do you think this collection of interviews says about us as a nation? (laughs) It's a really good question. And I think I've been asked it before and I tend to be slightly nervous about it. And I thought I was nervous about it because this isn't science. 180 people do not represent uh, the British Isles in any way, shape or form, or or certainly only in a a very uh, vague, tangential kind of a way. But I think more than that, what I hope the book does is that by presenting these sections individually and without commentary, it opens up the space for the reader to to make their own decisions about what it means and how it fits together and what the themes of the book are. And actually what's been interesting for me is talking to people and hearing what they found in the book, what they took away from it. And And that's really varied from person to person. So rather than me telling you what I think it's about, I'd rather the reader picks it up and decides for themselves what they think, what grabs them about it, what connections they make, how they find their way through it and connect all the pieces together. So I've been talking to Will Ashen. We've been talking about his book, The Passengers, which is out in the UK from Faber. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure as ever. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.